Okay, brothers and sisters, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, as was, was mentioned in the prayer, there are many of our brothers and sisters who are in places where they are amidst great danger because of the harsh weather conditions, especially there in Texas. So let us offer up prayers and supplications to our loving Abba that they will be cared for and provided for. Uh, so today we're going to do episode 10 of Bible Question and Answers. We have a list of questions already prepared. If you want to ask questions that we can discuss in this setting, this platform, the Bible Q&A, please submit your questions to, uh, uh, to info at assemblyofyahusha.org. So let's go ahead and get to the first set of questions that we're going to discuss today. Uh, greetings. I just had a couple of questions I wanted to ask. Number one, is it okay to invest in the stock market or is it considered gambling? Do ghosts exist and where does the spirit go after someone passes? Number three, is it possible for God to allow a loved one's spirit to send its farewells after one dies? So this is the first set of questions. Let's go with question number one. Is it okay to invest in the stock market or is it considered gambling? So to make this comparison, we need to, of course, need to know what gambling means. And as many of us know, ever since we were young, we were often taught, well, gambling is a sin. It's against the holy scriptures. That's true. However, there's no explicit discussion about gambling per se that we find in scripture. For example, there's no commandment that says, thou shalt shall not gamble. There's no commandment like that. But it doesn't mean gambling is okay. It is flat out wrong. And I believe it is a sin against God. So why is gambling wrong? Well, for us to be able to determine the answer to that question and then go back and connect it with the stock market and investing in stocks, we need to first understand, well, what is gambling? What is the characteristic of gambling? Well, in short, when we think about gambling, when we look at what is involved with gambling, we know that gambling is basically an attempt to get rich quickly, right? Uh, without meaningful effort, the only effort that you put into it is pushing a button or maybe going driving to uh, a nearby gas station and purchasing a lottery ticket, right? Not much meaningful effort at all, based entirely on luck, not skill or research, motivated by love of money, and almost always leads to much trouble and suffering because people end up becoming addicted to gambling. And so it leads to so much pain and suffering, not only on the part of the gambler, but also the people who are involved with them, namely the people they love. And so having said all that, when we look at gambling in this context, is it against the will of God? Absolutely. First and foremost, what does Apostle Paul teach us? Timothy 6, 9 to 10, but people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. So although there is no explicit command that says thou shalt not gamble, we can see the root of gambling, the longing to be rich is mentioned in the Holy Bible. What does Apostle Paul teach concerning love for money? Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Why is it the root of all kinds of evil? Because people who love money and long to be rich fall 
into temptation, one of which is gambling. When you spend your money and you end up throwing it away, resulting uh, in your finances being plunged into ruin, piercing yourselves with many sorrows. How many people here know someone who has a problem with gambling addiction? Perhaps you know people who are like that. We, we don't want their life to end up in great sorrow and misery. God does not want that for anyone. And so God protects us. And one of the ways by which God protects us is by his command, by his teaching, that we should not love money because it leads to temptation, one of which is plunging yourself into financial ruin because of gambling. Now, what does the Bible say about getting rich quick? Proverbs 13, verse 11. Wealth from get rich quick schemes quickly disappears. Wealth from hard work grows over time. And so according to the Holy Scriptures, gambling, which is based on getting rich quickly, schemes to get you to where you want to be without any effort at all, goes against the grain of Scripture. Because the Bible says it is hard work over time that is, the, that is blessed by Yahuwah, our God. And in other translations of Proverbs 13, 11, this is what it also says. Uh, wealth not earned, but won in haste or unjustly or from the production of things for vain or detrimental use. Such, such riches will dwindle away. But he who gathers little by little will increase his riches. Riches. There was a study conducted by social scientists, social psychologists concerning people who win the lottery, people who win great amounts of money. Perhaps, you know, like 0.001% of the gamblers who win big, they win the, uh, the, uh, the jack, they get the jackpot, right? And they get money, they get rich all of a sudden, maybe 20 million, 10 million. And what social scientists found out was these people who all of a sudden got all these earnings eventually end up losing all of it because their character does not match that lifestyle. And so the Bible tells us it's not about the money that, you, that you're able to win. It's about your character. And the way the Bible teaches the value of character is you work at it little by little. It takes patience. It takes endurance, it takes hard work, and that's the character that God wants us to develop. And against the principles of that character is getting rich quick by means of gambling. And so oftentimes when people insist on gambling, what often do they experience? Proverbs 28.20, the trustworthy person will get a rich reward, but a person who wants quick riches will get into trouble. Take note, there's nothing wrong with becoming rich or wealthy because the Bible says a trustworthy person will get a rich reward. But what the Bible is against are people who seek riches and to get it quickly because this always leads into great trouble. Sometimes a person is even tempted to go against the law, to commit crime, to hurt others in pursuit of riches or to get themselves out of the trouble they find themselves in because of gambling in the first place. What, are, what other principle does it betray when people gamble? In the book of 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 12, while we were with you, 
we used to tell you, whoever refuses to work is not allowed to eat. We say this because we hear that there are some people among you who live lazy lives and who do nothing except meddle in other people's business. In the name of the Lord Yahusha Christ, we command these people and warn them to lead orderly lives and work to earn their own living. According to the Holy Scriptures, what principle is betrayed when people get rich because of gambling? It is the principle that was mentioned and emphasized by Apostle Paul. He even mentions the name of Lord Yahushua Christ, which is the principle of working hard to earn your own living. If you're not going to work hard, you should not be allowed to eat. Now, where did this principle come from? Way back in the Garden of Eden, when Yahuwah God said, out of your sweat, you are to eat. And so hard work is part of what is required by Yahuwah God for each and every individual. And so gambling is the opposite of that. It works against that. So when we look at the concept and the idea and what is involved with gambling, it is contrary to the principles of the Holy Bible. So it is a sin to gamble, especially when it leads to great sorrow and trouble. On the other hand, when we compare gambling to investing in stocks, it is quite different, right? How many here are familiar with investing in stocks? Have you invested in stocks before? So what is involved when it comes to in investing in stocks? Well, investing in stocks involves careful study and research of companies. Because when you buy stock, what you're basically buying is a share of a company, right? You're investing in a company. And so the company you're investing in, you believe is going to progress. And so you have to do your due diligence. You have to do your research. And so it's not based on luck. There may be a little uh, luck involved in it, as in all ventures in life. However, when it comes to investing in stocks, when you uh, engage in careful study and research, the better off you are. So investing in stocks, unlike gambling, involves a careful study and research of companies and basic economic trends in order to make well-informed decisions. You don't just you don't rely on luck, but well-informed decisions that often result in a steady incremental increase in investment. So when we look at both uh, investing in stocks and also in um, gambling, they are entirely different. Now, we're going to make a disclaimer when we talk about investing in stocks, we're not including day trading, right? Because in day trading, it's almost like gambling because you're relying most mostly upon luck. So we're going to uh, limit our discussion on the traditional investing in stocks by being partners with companies. So is this biblical? The principle of investment, is it something biblical? Yeah, it was even used by Yahusha himself in one of his parables. Let's read this parable. Although this parable is not about, in, about investing in stock, the principle nevertheless is found within the structure of the parable, the principle of investment. Matthew 25, 22, 23, the one who received $4,000 came and said, sir, you gave me $4,000. I've doubled the amount. His master replied, good job. You're a good and faithful servant. You proved that you could be trusted 
with a small amount, I will put you in charge of a large amount. Come and share your master's happiness. So we have a parable here about a master and about an employer or an employee or someone who works for his master. Master gives this person $4,000. What was the pur purpose of the master in giving this person uh, $4,000? is so that he can make a profit, right? And so although this passage is about the kingdom, about Yahusha investing in us with spiritual gifts for the expansion of the kingdom, we can look at the principle of investing in someone or something, in this case, a company, right? And so when, you, when these, the master gave uh, $4,000 to this servant, what, did, what was the servant able to do? He was able to double it because he invested in, he invested that money that was given to him. On the other hand, one who does not invest, what does the Bible say about that? Matthew 25, 24, 27. Then the one who received $2,000 came and said, Sir, I knew that you were a hard person to please. You harvest where you haven't planted and gather where you haven't scattered any seeds. I was afraid. So I hid your $2,000 in the ground. Here's your money. His master responded, You evil and lazy servant. If you knew that I harvest where I planted and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have invested my money with the bankers. When I returned, I would have received my money back with interest. And so to highlight the principle of investing in the parable of Yahusha, he mentions the servant who was given $2,000, right? And what did the servant do with the $2,000? He did nothing with it but to hide it. And so when the master comes back for accounting, he says, okay, where's my money? And the servant says, here's $2,000. This is exactly what you gave me. But what did the master say to this person? He said, you evil and lazy servant. Why did he say you evil and lazy servant? Because he did nothing with the money that was given to him. In other words, he was not a wise steward of what was entrusted to him. And so the purpose of investing money is wise stewardship of money, wise stewardship of wealth. Gambling is the complete opposite. It is the throwing away, the wasting away of your wealth. God does not want us to do that. He wants us to be wise stewards of our wealth. One is by investing. It turns out in this example, this parable of Yahusha, Yahusha said, you should have invested my money with bankers. Because if you invest with bankers, guess what? You get an interest. What's the ROI for banks nowadays, savings? What is the return for investment? Like 1%, less than 1%, right? So your interest is like 0.01%. But if you invest in like stocks, maybe like a mutual fund, like 12%. So 1% versus 12%, stocks are looking pretty good, right? And so based on that, we see the principle of investing to be according to the teachings of the Holy Bible. However, the Bible does give us a warning about investing. What is that? Ecclesiastes 5.14, money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. In the end, there's nothing left to pass on to one's 
children? What does the Bible warn us about when it comes to investing, maybe like in the stock market? Bible says we have to be careful of risky investments. And how can we minimize this risk? What can we do to be wise stewards of our wealth? In Proverbs 27, 23 to 24, be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds, for riches do not endure forever, and the crown is not secure for all generations. Two things we need to consider, our financial condition, right? And also an understanding of the fact that circumstances changes. How many people knew COVID was going to hit? Did we prepare for COVID-19? None of us did but it had an impact. It had a financial impact. There are things that we cannot predict. And so we need to understand riches do not endure forever. We need to always understand our condition as far as our finances and what we have are concerned so that we can make better choices when it comes to investing what we have. In addition to this, what also must we consider? The book of Luke 14, 28 to 30, but don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money. And then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. And so before we invest our wealth, we need to count the cost, right? Are we able to, for example, worse comes to worse. The stocks don't do well. Are we able to live? Are we still able to survive? Are we still able to provide for our family? You know what I'm talking about? And so how much of that are you going to invest? You're not going to invest the entire thing. You got to be wise about the cost. And so we need to always put that into consideration because you don't want to risk your entire wealth when your kids and your mortgage needs payment, your kids need uh, sustaining, your kids have also things that they need in life, right? Your family needs um, finances as well. And so to be able to make good decisions about investments, what should we always, always seek? Proverbs 15, 22, plans go wrong for lack of advice. Many advisors bring Success. This is why investing in stock requires work. It's not just, it's not completely by luck. A lot of it, a big chunk of it, the big core of it involves a lot of work. What kind of work? Research, right? Asking questions, asking for advice. So if you know people who are experts at certain fields and you want to invest in a company, you ask about that company. You ask about, you look at the, the, the history of that, the growth of the company. You look at so many factors, the more factors you look into, the more advisors you have, the greater success you're going to achieve. And so when it comes to investing in stocks, it requires a lot of intellectual work. It, it requires a lot of research. This is why it is not in the same, it should not be considered as gambling. And so the Bible even gives us advice when it comes to investing on stocks. In the book of Ecclesiastes 11, 1 to 2, send your grain, your riches across the seas, and in time, profits will flow back to you. But 
divide your investments among many places, for you do not know what risks might lie ahead. We have no idea what risks lie ahead. No one had any idea that COVID is going to hit, right? No one had any idea that what happened to Texas today would happen. There's so many things that happened beyond our control. And so what's the best way to distribute our wealth? Bible says divide your investments among many places. In other words, as the saying goes, do not place all of your eggs in one basket. It comes from Ecclesiastes 11, 1 down to 2, which is why I believe there are, there's the idea of the mutual fund where people who do a lot of the research kind of uh, distribute the investments among many places, right? So that's basically the idea behind that. However, what is most important when it comes to investing is the book of Proverbs 16, verse 8. Better to have little with godliness than to be rich and dishonest. And so when we invest, let us make sure that we do not go against the principle of godliness, which means we don't oppress, we don't cheat, we don't do anything in by dishonest means. And so is it a sin to invest in stocks? No. And yes, well, it depends. When is it a sin to depend uh, to to us to uh, invest in stocks? If your motivation is a love for money, this is why the Bible says in Hebrews thirteen five, don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So why are you going to invest in stocks in the first place? Is it because you love money or is it because you're preparing for the future and you want to be a wise steward of the wealth that God provided you to better take care of yourself and your family looking forward? If that's the case, then it's not a sin. Only remember, do not depend on money. Do not trust money. Instead, place our trust and hope in who? Our almighty God. Why is God more or a better way to ensure our security, because unlike money, God will never fail us. I will never fail you, God says. I will never abandon you. And so the best thing to do to secure our future is to depend and trust in God. Is it wrong to invest? No. Can God use our investments to help us? Yes. And so what should we also remember when we grow in wealth? In the book of Proverbs 3, 9 to 10, honor Yahuwah with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. And so according to the Bible, if God has blessed our investments, let's not forget the source of our blessing. Who is that? Yahuwah, our God. The Bible says honor Yahuwah with your wealth, because if we do not honor Yahuwah with our wealth, it is as though we're saying to Yahuwah God, everything I have done that came from my own power and strength, which is not true. Bible says we plant, we, we uh, water the soil, but the one who makes it grow really is who? Yahuwah, our God. So honor Yahuwah with our wealth. Okay, question, that's question number one. Question number two, do ghosts exist and where does the spirit go after someone passes? Okay, how many here have seen a ghost? Brother Maddie, have you seen a ghost before? 
No, how about someone who looks like a ghost? Never. How do you know what a ghost looks like? No, no, I've never seen a ghost. Have you seen a ghost? I mean, there are people who claim they've seen ghosts. I mean, we have pictures, videos of ghostly encounters, right? But have we, do we know what a ghost is? And uh, my son is raising his hand. Have you seen a ghost? And my son said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my daughter has seen a ghost. My, my son has seen a ghost. Um, there are people who claim they've seen ghosts. Yeah, so do ghosts exist? When we see something, what is it that we actually see? Let's read the book of Thessalonians concerning ghosts. What is a ghost in the first place? Well, let's talk about the human being. In Thessalonians 5.23, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Yahusha Christ. So the human being is, is we can say in simplistic terms, is composed of three parts, right? The spirit, the soul, and the body. And so what, by definition, is a ghost? We can say a ghost is a soul or spirit that has left the body. So when a person dies, supposedly the soul lingers. And so the soul, which is representative of the consciousness, the the heart, the emotions of the individual, the identity of the individual, it lives on as a soul, but it's no longer with the body, a physical body, flesh and blood, right? That is basically the definition of a ghost. So if there are ghosts, when the, when the person dies, then the body dies, but the soul or the spirit somehow continues to live on and lingers and visits us and makes appearances that we can see, right? So let's go ahead and find out what happens according to the Bible, not according to our experiences, but according to the Bible. What happens to a person when he or she dies? Ecclesiastes 3, 19 to 20, man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust all return. So the Bible's speaking here about the physical body. What happens to the body, which is made of dust upon the onset of death? Bible says upon the onset of death, a human being, although he was created in the image of God, right? Unlike the animal, but both the animal and the human being are composed of fleshly material, the body. And so at the onset of death, the human body, just like the animal, which is made of dust, at the onset of death, they all return to dust. So upon death, the physical body dies. It is going to return to the earth. That's the, the body part of human being. Well, how about the soul? What happens to the soul? Ezekiel 18.4, for every living soul belongs to me. The father as well as the son, both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. And so the body dies. The soul dies together with the body. Well, how about the spirit? What happens to it? Ecclesiastes 12, 7, and the dust, the body, returns to the ground it came from. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. And so when a person dies, the body, the soul, dies and clings to the ground. 
It's laid low, and the spirit returns to who? Yahuwah, our God. And so the Bible does not mention of a disembodied spirit or a disembodied soul that lingers on earth that haunts people. It does not exist in the Holy Bible. But brother, what about what I saw? Because I know I saw something. I'm not hallucinating. I know I was of sound mind. I know what I saw. And just like countless millions of people who have their own testimonies, they will say they saw something. They saw a ghost. So what did they see if it's not a disembodied soul or a disembodied spirit? What did they see? Let's read the book of Mark 5, 1 to 5. So they arrived at the other side of the lake. In the region of the Gerasenes, when Yahusha climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from a cemetery to meet him. This man lived among the burial caves and could no longer be restrained even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles as often as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. And so when people claim to have seen ghosts, and we don't doubt what you saw, you did indeed saw something, right? We're not going to discredit you. You saw something. So what could you have seen? Perhaps a manifestation of an evil spirit. How do evil spirits manifest themselves? Sometimes they possess individuals. And when an individual is possessed with an evil spirit, they act crazy. They do heinous crimes. They do a lot of things that are against the will of God. And sometimes they're depicted like this from the cemetery, right? There's evil spirit somehow occupies an individual and this person receives a lot of strength. And so there's been exorcisms that have been done in the past to remove the evil spirit. So the evil spirit can take possession of an individual. However, even more, uh, more than that, because evil spirits are not limited to simply possessing individuals, but also are they able to do. In the book of 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. but I'm not surprised even Satan disguises himself as an angel of Light and so an evil spirit can also take on other forms. They can disguise themselves. They can masquerade as someone else, even as an angel of light. It's not. It's not difficult for an evil spirit to appear to you as though they were someone else. Perhaps someone that you know who already passed away, or maybe someone else you've never seen before. Because those who, for example, say that they've seen a ghost, they haven't seen the actual face, right? And sort of the different, different manifestation of the evil spirit. So do ghosts exist? Well, ghosts are simply the uh, evil spirit manifesting himself, okay? And not the actual living being who died and then resurrected somehow and becomes a disembodied soul or disembodied the spirit. Okay, so let's go to the third question. Is it possible for God to allow a loved one's spirit to send its farewells after one dies? Perhaps it's possible for God. Can he do that if he wanted to? Yeah, he can do that. Um, certainly he can do anything he wants. And we do not want to put God in a box. We don't limit what he can or cannot do. But if we look at the Bible, is it possible 
It's certainly possible, but is it something that the Bible teaches as a norm? This is what it says in the book of Job 7, 9 to 10. As a cloud vanishes and is gone. So he goes down to the grave, does not return. He will never come to his house again. His place will know him no more. So when a person dies, Bible says he goes to the grave and he does not return. And he doesn't go back to his house and linger there and haunt individuals. Cannot do that. And so what happens then when it seems that people who have died in their house, because sometimes when we watch TV and they have these special shows about haunted houses, right? And they, they have the history of people who used to live there, perhaps were grisly murdered. And so their spirits are stuck in that house. That's what they say. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches they go to their grave. And once in their grave, they stay in their grave. They will stay there until judgment day when they will be resurrected. And so they will not come back and go to their home. They will not be recognized anymore. Well, how about the things that have been seen, captured on film, so on and so forth? The book of 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 to 11, the wicked one will come with the power of Satan and perform all kinds of false miracles and wonders. I want to pause there for a while. When you see a spirit floating in the air, when you see a spirit go through walls, those are wonders, right? Those are miracles. And so when we see something astonishing, something supernatural, we think right away, okay, this is a ghost. But the Bible says that Satan has the power to perform all kinds of false miracles, all kinds of wonders. What is his purpose in performing all of this? In verse 10, it says, and use every kind of wicked deceit. And those who will perish, they will perish because they did not welcome and love the truth so as to be saved. And so God sends the power of error to work in them so that they believe what is false. According to Apostle Paul, when there are encounters with the supernatural, when beings that appear to be ghosts at first sight seem to be real. The Bible says we need to be watchful. We need to be careful with the work of Satan because what is he able to do? False miracles and wonders for the purpose of deceiving. What does he want the, the people of God to believe? They want the people of God to believe in what is false, not what is true. This is why for us not to be deceived, we need to welcome and love the truth. Hence, we study the words of God. And so perhaps what you saw, that uh, distinct individual, a human figure of sort floating across the room, perhaps it is the work of the devil, the work of an evil spirit. Now, what is the purpose of his deceiving? What does he want you to do? Well, this is what the devil wants us to do, which is why... There are people who claim to have seen ghosts and specters and other figures of that nature. Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 12. When you enter the land, Yahuwah, your God is giving you. Be careful not to imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. For example, never sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering. And do not let your people practice fortune telling or use sorcery or interpret omens, or engage in witchcraft, or cast spells, or function as mediums or psychics, or call forth the spirits of the dead. Anyone who does these things 
is detestable to Yahuwah. It is because the other nations have done these detestable things that Yahuwah, your God, will drive them out and uh, drive them out ahead of you. So what is the purpose of Satan? What is the purpose of evil spirits in convincing you of the reality of ghosts so that you can be tempted to call forth the spirits of the dead? Because a lot of times when we, lost, when we lose a loved one, we kind of have this longing to see them again, right? And when all of a sudden it seems that they have appeared before you, you might be tempted to call forth the spirit of the dead. But the Bible says this is detestable to Yahuwah. We must never do such a thing. And people who do the work of calling the spirit of the dead, they're also associated with other detestable acts, right? Like what? Fortune telling, sorcery, interpreting omens, engaging in witchcraft, casting spells, functioning as mediums or psychics. And so Yahuwah God categorized them in the same category. And these, this is the work of the occult, the author of which is the devil. And so we need to be mindful not to be deceived into practicing any of these things. And so when you see a ghost, when you see a specter, make sure that you do not get involved with these practices because the evil spirit is trying to get you to do the thing which is detestable to Yahuwah, our God. Okay? All right. Let's go to another question. Does the verse in 1 Corinthians 1, 14, 29 to 31, also applicable to a woman that they can also preach the gospel? Some organizations today, a woman can be a pastora, right? Pastor, pastora. All right. Let's go ahead and... We'll look at 1 Corinthians 14, 29 to 31. This is what it says, two or three who are given God's message should speak, while the others are to judge what they say. But if someone sitting in the meeting receives a message from God, the one who is speaking should stop. All of you may proclaim God's message one by one so that everyone will learn and be encouraged. So Apostle Paul is teaching us about the orderliness of a gathering, a meeting of the Christians, a worship, a worship gathering, a worship assembly. And the Apostle Paul says there are people who are assigned or people who have a message, and so they speak. And so while these people are speaking, these people who have the message of God are speaking, what is the responsibility of everyone else? It is to judge what they say. After Doing that, what does Apostle Paul remind everyone? He says, all of you may proclaim God's message. And that, undoubtedly, when it mentions all of you, it includes not just the men, but also the women, right? So do women have the right to proclaim God's message? Yeah, they can. If they are qualified, if they are, you know, if they have the gift uh, to do that. Having said that, this is what Apostle Paul adds we read verse 31, right? Let's read now 32 to 34. It says here, the gift of proclaiming God's message should be under the speaker's control. And so if a person who's sitting in there and receives a message, oh, this is, I feel God is, uh, has given me this message. I need to spread it, right? But for the sake of, but then what does Apostle Paul say? If a person has this gift and receives a message, the gift of proclaiming God's message should be under the speaker's control because 
God does not want us to be in disorder, but in harmony and peace. Can you imagine? Well, someone is speaking, someone will just all of a sudden pop up and say, I have a message. <laughs> it's going to be disorderly. And so Apostle Paul is giving instructions to maintain the orderliness of the gathering, the worship gathering. And so to do that, what does he add? He says, as in all the churches of God's people, the women should keep quiet in the meetings. They are not allowed to speak. As the Jewish law says, they must not be in charge. And so the Bible says, Apostle Paul says, after saying all of you should proclaim the words of God, he then adds, as in the churches or in the assemblies of God's people, the women should keep quiet in the meetings. Does it mean they're not allowed to speak the message of God? Is that what it means? I don't think so. Why? Because in Corinthians 11, verse 5, this is what it says. And any woman who prays or proclaims God's message in public worship with nothing on her head disgraces her husband. There is no difference between her and the woman whose head has been shamed. And so Apostle Paul mentions that women are able to pray and even proclaim God's message in public worship. And so in Corinthians 13, uh, 32 to 34, he's not forbidding the women to speak the message of God. What then is he forbidding the women? It says here, they are not allowed to speak. As the Jewish law says, they must, they must not be in charge. In other words, the kind of speaking that they are not allowed to, to uh, be engaged in is the speaking where they have authority over men because they are not allowed, they are not given leadership or authoritative roles in the church. And what is the reason behind that? In the book of Timothy 2, 11 and 14, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. And so there's a difference between proclaiming a message of God and having a leadership role, right? This is why a woman, I don't believe, should be a pastor or an elder, one who is in charge of men. But he can speak and he can lead a ministry of women, just like Miriam. She can lead a ministry over children because they're not men. This is why they can be a, a teacher and take a leadership role, for example, of an organization that helps and teaches young people. But when it comes to becoming an elder or a pastor, it is for men, not women, because in God's design for the assembly, there is a structure and the authority must come from the man, not the woman. It doesn't mean that they're not equal. They're equal the eyes of God. But when it comes to certain authority, certain leadership roles, it is the man that has been given that role. Because Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay, so can a woman proclaim the message of God? Yes, they should be proclaiming the message of God, which is another misunderstanding that a lot of us have because many of us have been taught that we should not even hold the Bible, right? And so when a person comes to you asking for advice 
and you have a Bible in hand and you have a perfect passage for this person because God is teaching you something and you know it because you read the Bible and studied it. And so you have the perfect um, advice from the Bible to give this person. You should open the Bible. Is it wrong for you? Is it wrong for an individual who belongs to Yahushua to open his or her Bible and begins to teach? Okay, brother. Okay, sister. This is what the Bible teaches about your situation. Is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. You should be doing that. All of us should be teachers, according to Apostle Paul, because we should not be allergic and be afraid of the Bible. It is our source and our guidance at all times. Okay. All right. Let's go to our last question for today. Before I became INC, I was also in an organization that when we worship, it was so joyful that some of them are dancing while doing the praise and worship. And even in the time of Moses, Miriam was in charge of praising and worship with tambourines. Can we do that during our Christian time? Is there any verse in the Bible that Yahushua is singing praise and worship to our God, Yahuwah? Basically two questions. Uh, the first question is, can we do what Miriam did um, when it comes to the use of the tambourine, when it comes to dancing, right? Because it is biblical. Can we do that in the Christian time? Is it, what can we use? What can we do when it comes to worship? Let's go to that verse. Exodus 15, 20 to 21. Then Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, sing to Yahuwah, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. So we, here we have Miriam, and she was leading a group of women, right? And what did they do? What was the purpose of, of them as a group? It was to praise Yahuwah. That's why it says, sing to Yahuwah. He is highly exalted. And so how was Yahuwah exalted and praised? By singing and also by dancing. So dancing, per se, is not evil, right? Because dancing is a way of expressing worship as well. And so dancing is what was used by Miriam to express worship to Yahuwah God. And what other things can we use to express worship to God? In the book of Psalms 153-6, praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and flute. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise Yahuwah. Praise Yahuwah. So the Bible says we're not limited to an organ playing, right, or piano. As a matter of fact, we can't even read organ or plant or piano in this list, right? Bible tells us we can use a trumpet, we can use a harp, a lyre, we can use a tambourine, strings, flute, cymbals to worship our God Yahuwah. There's nothing wrong with incorporating instruments, including dancing. Right? Is there anything wrong with using dancing in worship? There's nothing wrong with that. Another thing, what else should be characterized? What should characterize our worship and singing? In the book of Psalms 101 to 2, sing to Yahuwah all the world, worship Yahuwah with joy, 
come before him with happy songs. So the Bible says when we meet together for worship, we can use different musical, musical instruments and we can sing happy songs. Because sometimes a lot of our songs are kind of like sad. Nothing wrong with having a sad song, but Yahuwah says, whoa, worship him with joy. Come before him with happy songs. This is why we should, I would suggest we should kind of trend towards happy songs and joyful songs because we are praising Yahuwah. Is it okay to dance when it comes to worshiping God? Yes. Does it mean we're going to incorporate it in our public worship? Probably not. Why? Because there's a difference between personal worship, right? And congregational worship. When we do congregational worship, it's not just you worshiping God, right? You're worshiping God as an organization, as a body. And if uh, dancing is part of the worship, you want everyone doing it. But there are some elders who won't be able to move that body anymore, right? Not everyone is going to be able to do that. But what can everyone do? Everyone can sing, right? This is why him singing, okay, it's part of the congregational worship. And when one begins to dance and move, it becomes more like a, like a party instead of a solemn event. And when it comes to meeting together as a congregation, take note, if you're by yourself, you're with your family, and you want to dance for, because you want to honor Yahuwah, by all means, that's good, right? But we cannot expect to do what we do at a, on a personal level and also incorporate that in the congregational level. And when we meet together for worship, Hebrews 12, 28 says, let us be thankful then because we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be grateful and worship God in a way that will please him with reverence and awe. Yes, we need to have joy, but we also need to show reverence, a holy respect for Yahuwah, our God. This is why our worship service is so, so solemn. You can have solemn and joyful worship without going out of bounds of showing reverence. But when you're, everyone's moving uh, really fast, right, it kind of ruins the atmosphere of reverence and solemnity when it comes to worshiping our God. What also must we consider when it comes to public worship? Let's read the book of Corinthians 14, 26 and 40. That is what I mean, my friends. When you meet for worship, one person has a hymn, another a teaching, another a revelation from God, another a message in strange tongues, and still another uh, the explanation of what is said. Everything must be of help to the church. Everything must be done in a proper and orderly way. And so when we meet for worship, as a congregation, what must be considered? Number one, it must help the church. And so if we incorporate dancing, will that help the church? It might divide the church, right? Okay. And number two, everything must be done in a proper and orderly way. If we're going to incorporate dancing, who's going to dance? Is everyone going to dance? Who? How can those who are unable to move their bodies because of physical limitations participate in worship if we incorporate that? And so it's going to be very difficult to do it in a proper and orderly way. But if we have him singing with the organ playing, can we do that? Yeah. How about him singing with the organ playing and other musical instruments? Can we do that? Yeah. Provided that it is not, it keeps the reverence 
and at the same time also expresses joy in our Creator. And if you notice in Corinthians 14, uh, when the when Apostle Paul is speaking about the meeting together for worship, it didn't mention any dancing, right? But it does mention him singing. So that is what we're going to keep as the Assembly of Yahushua. When we meet together, we will not incorporate dancing. But you can dance on your own. You can dance with a group. You can bring a bunch of young uh, brethren together and you can dance for the glory of Yahuwah God. Let's just make sure that we do it in a way that pleases and honors Yahuwah God and not in a way that pleases and honors yourself. Because a lot of time, a lot of dance movements, right, it's expressive of instead of glorifying God, it, it's glorifying self. And so there has to be a distinction between the two. Okay, let's go to that last question. Is there any verse in the Bible that Yahushua is singing praise and worship to God, to our God, Yahuwah? Well, not directly, not explicitly, but it is implied. How so? In the book of Matthew 26, 27, 30, then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. When they, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So what we read here was about Yahusha instituting the supper, right? Yahusha's Passover, which is what we're going to celebrate this coming March 27. And so when Yahusha spoke to them about this covenant, which is which he calls my blood of the covenant, which is Yahushua's Passover. He took bread, blessed and broken, and gave it to them to eat. He also took the cup, blessed and gave them, gave it to them to drink. And he then, after this, um, the Passover, after this meal, the Bible says they sung a hymn, and we can assume that Yahushua was present. Throughout all this, and he was present during the singing of the hymn, but there was no dancing, right? But there was a singing of a hymn of which Yahusha participated. Why are we sure that Yahusha participated in the singing of praises? In Hebrews 2, 11 and 12, both the one who makes men holy and those who were made holy are of the same family. So Yahusha is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And so the Bible says, Yahusha will declare Yahuwah's name to us. That's why those who say that Yahusha never taught that we are to use the name, they're wrong. The Bible says it right here. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. What will you also do? I will sing your praises. So does Yahusha praise Yahuwah? Yes. Does he sing? Yes. Have we heard him sing? No. But one day we probably will when we are with him in his heavenly kingdom. Okay. All right. So that is our Bible uh, question and answers for today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. But before we go ahead and conclude, let us all stand for our prayer. Almighty and loving Father, yes, Yahuwah God Almighty, we thank you so much yes, for giving us the wisdom that we can make the right choices yes, when we are presented with various situations. Amen. Help us to turn always to this source, your yes. holy book, the Holy Bible, yes. to find your will in our life yes. that we can be pleasing to you 
at all moments in our Amen. existence. May you bless our brothers and sisters, yes. bless our friends and loved ones. May you help us to be bright lights for the world yes. as we present to them the gospel message. Amen. Yahusha, our King and Mashiach, yes. may you be with your servants at all times. May you increase our faith and strengthen yes. our hope. Amen. Father, please continue to be with us in all of our works. Yes. May you help us to improve, to grow in our spirit, yes. that we can be ready always to receive the promise of everlasting life. Amen. We ask and beg everything, Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.